With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. I grew up for the first 14 years of my life on a roughly 800-acre British-style estate about a half hour from Philadelphia. It was an extraordinarily beautiful piece of land that had been pieced together by my great-grandfather in the years leading up to and immediately after World War I. It had been farms before, so there were old stone farmhouses dating back to the 1700s, some of them in ruins, stone barns, rolling hills, pasture, cornfields, soybean. There was a herd of 300 Ayrshire cows, so there was a functioning dairy farm. But basically, it was a sort of British-style gentleman's estate kind of plucked from the pages of Jane Austen and Henry James and floated across the Atlantic and plunked down in the suburbs of Philadelphia. That's Jenny Scott, a longtime journalist for The New York Times. Her recent book is the memoir The Beneficiary, Fortune, Misfortune, and the Story of My Father. Often, we long to unlock the puzzle of our parents, but most of us never do. We wonder, we posit, we have theories. And when our parents are gone, there's a tinge of regret that we didn't get to know them better, that we didn't ask questions or dig deeper while we still could. But Janie's is a story, ultimately, of literally unlocking a puzzle. The puzzle of her father, Robert Montgomery Scott. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us 
the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I remember there was a hill that my father took us to toboggan on, where he had clearly tobogganed as a child. There was a a uh, hollow tree that he had used as a kind of fort, which was still, of course, hollow when we came along and we were able to use it in its slightly decaying state. But mostly, it was a deeply visceral experience of a wild piece of land of extraordinary beauty. It was a degree of rootedness that I now see uh, was kind of unusual in certainly in suburban American life, maybe rural American life more so. But I wasn't really conscious of that at the time. I just uh, experienced it the way a child would. As children, we accept our lives as being normal. Whatever they are, they're ours. Especially back then, in pre-internet days, there was simply no basis for comparison. But later, as a young working journalist, Jannie was acutely conscious of her family's extreme privilege— and she would avoid telling her colleagues about her childhood home. She would tell them she and her siblings grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania. The estate had a name, Ardrossum. This was just outside Philadelphia, an area that had been developed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries with the wealth that was pouring out of the city in its industrial heyday. But among the big houses, Ardrossum stood out as an estate that had remained in a family spanning one gilded age to the next. It had been built by Jannie's father's grandparents, his maternal grandparents, and generation after generation raised their families there. The summer Jannie turned 14, her family moved away to London, where her father had been offered a four-year political appointment. By the time they returned home, she was in college. She never lived at Ardrossan again, though she would return to it time and again in her mind. Describe your mother for me. My mother was a very, I would say, beautiful, red-headed woman from Boston, from a different part of the country, but sort of socially in sync with the world of my father. In fact, they met uh, at a wedding at age 18. She was very musical. She became ultimately a pianist, um, teaching and uh, doing some performing, not on a large scale kind, relatively soft-spoken, good sense of humor, not highly, I mean, she was certainly adept socially, but was not a hugely gregarious person who loved to be in at parties and that sort of thing. You know, a thoughtful, well-read, musical, kind mother. And your father? My father um, was in some ways a much more, seemingly more outgoing person. He appeared to be very gregarious. He knew a lot of people. I mean, he was out in the world more than my mother because she was a stay-at-home mother for quite a while. My father worked as a lawyer, and then when we went to London, he worked for the um, ambassador to the Court of St. James from the United States for four years as a special assistant. And then he came back, and he became increasingly involved in civic and cultural institutions in Philadelphia. He 
ran the Academy of Music for seven years, and then he uh, was president and CEO of the Philadelphia Museum of Art for 14 years. So he had a very public life as a sort of patrician uh, figure in Philadelphia, a kind of throwback to an old world, which he sort of played humorously. He dressed rather well in kind of Savile Row suits after we'd been in London, and uh, he had a slightly British accent, which was partly just from growing up in mainline Philadelphia and partly from and and the specifics of his family, which was very connected somewhat to Britain, but also by living in England. So he was a very colorful, well-known figure compared to my mother, who was more private and um, less visible. He was funny, uh, extremely charming. You know, a person who seemed, gave every impression of kind of being born into a rather charmed life and living it out just like that. In contrast to his gregarious, extroverted personality, Robert Montgomery Scott was an inveterate keeper of diaries, journals. Jannie had always been aware of these journals. They were simply a fact of life. Her father always carried around a small, loose-leaf binder. As a child, she never went looking for the diaries, something that now surprises her given her repertorial instincts. After all, her father was a bit of a mystery she longed to unlock. But then, in her 20s, at the end of a long-distance bike trip abroad with her father, he turned to her, seemingly out of nowhere, and told her that someday she would be the recipient of his journals, that he would leave them for her when he died. I was fascinated by my father from, I think, a pretty young age. I admired him and, um, to some extent, emulated funny things about him, and I wanted his approval. And he was somewhat enigmatic, uh, a bit elusive. I don't think I could have articulated that as a child, but it was as though he were slightly out of reach. Um, So the thought that he, out of the blue, would tell me that I could have his diaries when he died, not some point in the future, but when he died, um, was stunning to me and, of course, a source of great interest. But I also didn't know how to take it, and it's in the nature of my relationship with my father that for some reason I couldn't interrogate him at that moment as to why. So I said, well, why me? And he said, you're the writer, and just tossed it off like that. The conversation ended, um, as far as I remember, and I really never dared bring it up again uh, because I was so enticed by the idea. I didn't want to run any risks that there was that he might uh, withdraw the offer, change his mind, um, you know, that I might somehow seem to be eagerly awaiting his demise. And another thing about Robert Montgomery Scott, he liked to drink a lot. If someone had told me that there were people who didn't drink, it would be like saying there were people who didn't use soap. Um, It just was so common, and every event and, you know, every funeral involved repairing afterward to drink, it was just ubiquitous. And, of course, it was a time in American culture, particularly in that society, that men would come home from work and uh, have a bunch of drinks and wine with dinner. And uh, so it was just a fact of life. Eventually, as a college student, Jenny makes a decision not to drink, an unusual decision for a college student who isn't in trouble with alcohol. She'd had a bad experience around freshman year when she got very drunk. 
Can you imagine if every college freshman who drank too much one time quit drinking? Half the bars in the world would probably have to shut down for lack of business. I don't know why I stopped. It wasn't precipitated by any kind of crisis. Uh, So I like to think that somewhere in me, I would like to believe that somewhere in me, I sensed that in my family, where drinking was very common, and in my father's case, I now know he was a well long as an alcoholic at that point, but it went back generations too. I'd like to think that I somehow sensed that this was a bad idea and had the good sense to just make it all very clear for myself by ruling it out. But I don't know that for sure. That seems right, because why else would a college girl <laughs> That's without, without an, a huge inciting incident beyond, ooh, I drank too much one night and I didn't like the way I felt? I think the other factor was that I had become aware that it was difficult to have conversations with my father uh, after, you know, six o'clock. And it was maddening to me. While he wasn't a nasty drunk, he would sometimes say things that were um, inappropriate under the circumstances, things that you might have confided to him, he might, you know, say in the presence of somebody else. So... We became, I would say, much more conscious of this and attempted to talk to him about it um, completely unsuccessfully a number of times around the kitchen table after dinner when we were all there. And invariably, he would talk circles around us. He seemed to make the case that while he understood that he drank a lot and he liked to drink, it was not out of control. And thank you very much. And now I'm going off to bed. Was your mother in those meetings? Yes, she was. And I think she was in a difficult position because uh, my mother's posture with my father for a long time, I think, had been somewhat to sort of intermediate between us and him. She wasn't an apologist for his drinking. She clearly understood that it was a problem, but she was dealing with it in her own way, which probably varied over time. When I would come home from college and after that, um, my father for whatever reasons, the dynamics between us, we would end up having bad arguments about, often about politics or something like that. And my mother told me later that she had come to dread my coming home during that period. So I think it began to play out in our adult relationships with him in a way that it had been submerged when we were children. As a child, I thought my parents had a a good marriage and that we were a happy family. As an adolescent and as a young adult, it became more clear to me that there was um, tension in the household, passive-aggressive stuff, never that I was conscious of knock-down, drag-out fights, but um, just uh, an uncomfortable quality to some of the time that we spent together. I now know that what they had in common was background, and that he came to feel, I now know, although I didn't know this then, that that uh, that was an insufficient basis for a happy marriage. Uh, it was no secret from early on that my father, I guess if you would have said in that world, liked women. We knew the way children know that he was flirtatious and whatever that implied was not entirely clear. But the notion that he was somehow um, faithful to his marriage vows, that was not a a kind of given. Um, It was just something we 
sensed in the way he interacted with people and and particularly with uh, someone who we knew very well who was a friend of the family. The two families were close. It, it became a kind of private joke between the children of the two families that maybe the two families would merge. But later, you know, when we were out of the house, um, I now know, and I guess I sensed it at the time, that there were other women, too, that he was involved with. In fact, a moment when I was just about to graduate from college and I went to, with a friend, my then boyfriend, to the island of Nantucket where my parents had a house. Um, This was during, must have been in the late spring, and I called my parents to say, I'd like to go. And my mother said, oh, you'll encounter your father there. He's there with a friend. You know, go ahead. When we got there, I called the house and he answered the phone and um, he said, well, where are you? And I said, oh, we just got off the ferry. And he said, I'm not alone. And I, of course, you know, endlessly obedient, said, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll stay in a motel. And and he said, no, no, um, come on, come on back. And so we were going to go get some breakfast. We go to get some breakfast and uh, all of a sudden he emerges in the restaurant um, red-faced and very bluntly says, her name is Linda. And we proceeded to spend the weekend with my father and Linda. Did that put you in a position of then keeping a secret from your mother? I believe it did. Um, My father never asked me to keep the secret from my mother, but I don't know how I would have told her. Yes, I became a colluder, an un- witting or unintentional colluder uh, in my father's um, complex uh, extramarital life. But it isn't only her father's affairs that require collusion. It's also his drinking. I think one of the precipitating things that led us to take the problem more seriously and get organized to try and get him into treatment was that my brother and I went on a trip with him, a biking trip with him. I was in my very early 30s. We went to New Zealand with him with a group biking trip, and for two and a half weeks or so, we biked very hard, um, long distances. It was a fantastic trip. My father was great fun, and he took us, and um, we we loved the daytime part enormously, and New Zealand was, of course, spectacular. And then at night, he would drink heavily and get so drunk that on, like, night number two or three, a complete stranger on the trip came to us and said— Why haven't you helped him? It was a sort of shocking moment. Um, What could we say? Well, we've tried ineptly. um, But I think we were kind of shamed into or jolted into acting. So then we returned back to Pennsylvania, and we, we both wrote him letters about what we'd witnessed and how we felt about it and how we loved him and wanted him to take it seriously. And in the letters responding to us, he, particularly to my brother, who did drink, uh, and he assumed my brother would understand better than I would. I think he, he never thought I could understand what he was talking about. He explained how much he enjoyed drinking, how much of a part of his life it was. And I also know from other things that he said to other people that he felt he was a total bore when he didn't drink and that it was somehow this sort of magic elixir that made life tolerable. And now, I never thought my father's life would have been intolerable. 
But I also know that at a very young age, he had had a dream um, in which he dreamt of some red potion. This was at like, he, I think he said he was like five years old, and it was a recurrent dream of this sort of magic potion that made him feel differently and behave differently. So whatever it was that made him love it so much, it was very deep-seated, but we didn't understand at the time what that was. So Jenny's father manages to white-knuckle it for a while. He goes for stretches of time without alcohol, including weddings and large gatherings where he certainly would have been drinking. But it doesn't last. Finally, at the two-year mark, um, when it was clear that he was fully back to drinking, we were not around. My mother uh, had a confrontation and with him and said, you know, I want you to go back into treatment. And he walked out of the house and never returned. After a brief stay in a hotel, he decides to move back to Ardrasen, into a different house, what was called the Big House, the one his grandparents had first built. The 50-room house is at this point largely uninhabited. Jenny's cousin lives on the second floor and is raising prize-winning bull terriers in a kennel on the lawn. Jenny's father decides to move into what had been the nursery where his mother had been raised and turn the nursery into an apartment for himself. He moved into the top floor of that house and embarked upon a rather remarkable restoration of the top floor that then spread to the ground floor. And over the next decade, he um, restored every one of the public rooms on the ground floor to mint condition, uh, for, and including replacing the roof of the house, for millions of dollars. This was a house that he didn't own. But the house also had for him all sorts of emotional resonance, having, you know, known his grandparents and grown up there and known what it meant to his mother. And so the whole exercise was very, uh, I would say, emotionally complex. My father would have these fantastic Thanksgiving dinners the day after Thanksgiving, not to interfere with anybody else's, in which he would invite every family member and all sorts of other people. And the cast would rise to close to 100 by the time that uh, he finally died. What do you think that was about, those last years, in regard to both the Restoration and your father wanting to have these huge gatherings, have everybody come to this restored home. His parents had just died after very long lives. His marriage had just ended, and he had resigned or ret- retired uh, from his, his job, possibly under some pressure. Um, so everything had changed. He had grown up in this world of big houses, some of which had fallen by the wayside. One was a ruin where his father had grown up in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. One had been a a so-called cottage in Bar Harbor in the period when Bar Harbor was sort of like Newport uh, that ultimately had been torn down, a place he'd gone every year as a child. And ultimately, the family couldn't unload it after the war, after the Depression and the war, and had to basically dismantle it. Uh, So he'd seen the this sort of grand life, and he'd seen its decay. I think he thought that if he could make the house what it had once been, because it, it was really pretty much the only one of those huge 
suburban Philadelphia manses that was still occupied by the original family and had all the original stuff in it, if he could make that into something, a house museum or something that could become somewhat self-supporting, maybe some of the land would be preserved too. So I think it was an act of duty and loyalty and love and also a hope for preservation. And finally, it fed something in the way he had come to see himself, perhaps what he had been bred even to do. And he was constantly being written about in the restoration of the house as sort of the lord of the manor, which he was ironic about that, but he was willing to play that role. It's ironic, too, or or poetic, maybe, that as he's creating this or attempting to preserve this this monument to history, he's also decaying himself. He is self-destructing, and, and doctors are saying to him, if you keep this up, you're going to die. Yeah. And and he, he can't stop. That's right. Yeah, about, you know, just a few years into this process, he clearly did not look well. And um, we persuaded him to see a new doctor because his longtime doctor had been telling him he was the picture of health. Uh, one summer, uh, the thing that sort of precipitated this was seeing him on the beach in Nantucket with his his belly distended. He was not a fat man, but something had gone awry and it was like a basketball. And so he, he finally agreed to go to a different doctor who had understood alcoholism and also understood the world that my father was from because he was somewhat from it himself. And he diagnosed him very quickly as having cirrhosis of the liver. And while he wasn't willing to say how long he would last, he referred him to a specialist who said, you've got two to four years. So you can either stop or you can be dead in two to four years. And he didn't stop? No, he didn't. Um, Despite argumentation from me and others. He um, felt that at that point, he no longer had a job that he had to hold down, and he was not married. He was living uh, with a woman who apparently tolerated it. And he said, sort of felt like, you know, I'm I'm in my um, early 70s, and I'll, I'm going to do what I want. Now, people who know a lot about alcoholism would say, well, that's not a choice. It's, you know, it's an illness. And uh, that's, he may have phrased it that way, but it wasn't a choice. We'll be right back. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications. She had a Harvard plaque. Tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. That this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jannie's father dies at the age of 76, and in the aftermath of his death, Jannie looks around for his diaries. They aren't in his apartment, and at this point, as a working journalist and mother of young children, she's not in a position to really go digging for them. It's been decades since his promise on the bike trip that he would preserve, save, and leave them to her, and only her. And of course, she's never forgotten. But now, they're nowhere to be found. She asks his girlfriend, who says she'll take a look. A couple of weeks later, his girlfriend calls Jannie and says she's found a few. But when Jannie sees them, they're not what she'd been looking for. Just four slim volumes. More like the kind of journal he kept on trips. Not revealing. Not clues as to the mystery of her father and his demons. Not the real deal. 
Jannie wonders if perhaps the lifetime of journals had been destroyed. But then, she happens to be in her mother's basement, the house her father had left two decades earlier. At this point, she isn't looking for anything. After all, her father wouldn't have left his personal papers in the home of the woman he had left 20 years earlier. Would he have? My mother said, you might want to just see if there's anything. So my daughter, who was there, and I started digging through the letters, and at the very bottom, we came upon this one single black volume dating from the 1950s, when my father was in his mid-20s. And I took it back to New York and read it, and it was extraordinary, the most revelatory thing I'd pretty much ever seen about my father, and certainly coming from his own hand. And I realized I had to go back and search my mother's entire house. So I went back and did that, and in pretty much the last place I looked, in this quite large house, in in a um, walk-in closet, a large walk-in closet in the back area of the third floor, I noticed a wooden chest with a padlock on it that I didn't recall ever having seen before. And it was kind of boxed in with some cardboard boxes. And when I approached it, I could see that the padlock had been left at one digit off from the last four digits of my parents' phone number, the number they always used for combination locks. So it's kind of apparent what to do. I, I turned it the one notch and the lock sprung open and I hauled the chest out. And um, there were 40 years of diaries in identical black three-ring binders, all organized chronologically, seemingly waiting to be discovered. The journals that Jannie's father meant to leave in her care, and then perhaps ravaged by his alcoholism, forgot about, are extraordinarily beautifully written. Not just the command of language and structure, but the deep, deep insight into himself, the thinking, the feeling, just how well he knew himself and his circumstances. He wrote... I am now 26 years old. I live in a beautiful formal house with grounds which I cannot afford to keep on a decaying quasi-baronial domain of great beauty in an encroaching suburb. I am married to a charming wife with whom I have little in common but background. We live our background. This is no way to live. Have truer words ever been spoken? We live our background. We do this, that is, unless we break free. Or, in the words of Carl Jung, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. He describes there, and in many subsequent entries, um, fluctuations in his moods that date back to, I think he said, third grade. Some periods of depression, a word he used, uh, although he also sometimes used other words like, you know, euphemisms for depression, and also periods of elation and heightened creativity. Uh, And so he tracks these moods, particularly in that period and in his 30s, um, with uh, a real attention to what's happening. At the same time, he made it clear from very early on in his 20s that he was conscious that he had a drinking problem and that he perceived it to be a problem and that he used the drinking to, I would say, 
mitigate the effects of what he would refer to as the mood fluctuations, um, that somehow the drinking enabled him to get through all sorts of things, including social events, the very kinds of parties and things where he seemed to be so much in his element, he found those intolerable without drinking. So there was the acute, acute examination of his own sort of soul and mental state. Janny's father's recurring dream about the red potion he'd had since he was a child? A searing, painful example of the ways that deep down we know our own demons. We know them, even though we can't speak them. And so we keep them secret, out of shame, or simply because we think we can't live without them. But eventually, even if it couldn't be resolved or fixed within his lifetime, Janny now knows so much more of her father's inner world. Mainly what I came away with it from, it took me months to read them, um, was this painful sense of his awareness of his mental state, his struggle with it, his consciousness about his drinking, and the way it led him to basically lie to us about something that he was wrestling with privately himself. So in in reading these journals and coming to know your father in this different way, you know, after his life, that self-knowledge, you know, that self-deprecation, that awareness of his own struggle, is that something that you're glad that you know? I'm very glad that I know this. I'm, you know, trained as a journalist, um, so I'm pathologically curious, and he was a puzzle for me from a very young age, and I don't begin to think that I fully fathomed him or that I understand him completely, but I definitely understand things from reading that that I would never have have gotten before. And the puzzle to me is, why did he do it in that way? Why did he tell me in my 20s he wanted me to have the journals when he was dead? Why did it have to be when he was dead? Was he unwilling to have any kind of conversation, which would have been unavoidable, uh, while he was alive on these topics? Um, did he change his mind? Uh, when did he put them up there under the with the padlock? Was it did he leave it obvious so that one of us would open it, or was it just that that's the way he used to take the pages up and he kind of left it in midstream? It's all a kind of interesting, you know, posthumous puzzle for me to try to understand what it means. Let's end with Janny reading just a bit from The Beneficiary, a moment when the whole family is together, visiting her father during a stint at McLean Hospital on the outskirts of Boston. The air that afternoon at McLean was loud with the din of cicadas. The five of us embarked awkwardly on a stroll along a path that wound through a wood on the hospital grounds. We fell into the old order of march, my father in the lead, my mother scurrying to keep pace, the three of us dawdling at the rear. At one point, I caught up with my father. To break the silence, I asked what he'd been reading. I'd sent him a package of magazines and books the morning after we'd dropped him off, a guilt offering. He'd been reading material put out by AA, he said. Had he learned things about alcoholism that he hadn't known, I asked. Oh, yes, he said. Like what? He was quiet. 
I glanced at him sideways, thinking he might be weighing the choice between degrees of self-revelation. The duplicitousness and deception involved, he answered, looking straight ahead. He left it at that. I'd like to thank my guest, Jannie Scott, for telling us her story here today. You can learn more about Jannie's memoir, The Beneficiary, Fortune, Misfortune, and the Story of My Father, by visiting JannieScott.com. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer, and Julie Douglas and Bethann Macaluso are executive producers. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, you can get in touch with us at listenermail at familysecretspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer, Facebook at Family Secrets Pod, and Twitter at Fam Secrets Pod. For more about my book, Inheritance, visit dannyshapiro.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.